This is a fascinating one to discuss, because the very first thing I want to talk about is how terrible and stupid the premise is. Now, if you've watched my DS9 stuff, you've already heard me say this, so allow me to just say, in brief, the very idea of the Mirror Universe is stupid. Like, this this is actually getting into what is effectively nonsense, as, as I like to call it, where it's, okay, so there's another Mirror Universe where everything is basically the same as in this universe, Except, you know, they're evil or whatever, but also they happen to be doing the same mission on the same planet with the same people beaming up at the same time. Like, let's ignore the uncountable number of other variables that have to be setting up. Just just those. Ship, people, mission, time. Just these four variables by themselves. If any of these was off, by a microscopic amount, none of this would have happened. What? Now, this is also related to something I've brought up several times in Deep Space Nine. See, here's the thing. In just about all these Mirror Universe episodes, what what happens? Well, people tend to die, right? Or people tend to go away or whatever. Uh, how many people died just in this episode? It was mostly just nameless people, but still, that's people dying. And this happens in every Mirror Universe episode, not counting the Discovery stuff, which, as a fresh reminder, I have still not seen as of the point of recording here. Right? So, with all these changes, how is it then still possible that the same people are born at the same ages with the same, under the same circumstances, right? If you haven't seen the DS9 stuff, I will repeat my theory that this is a crafted universe. That someone actually specifically set it up. And basically, it's very simple. Copy, paste, different rule set, execute. And that's the idea, right there, in a nutshell. Uh, this would be close to being a reality photoshopper, something I've talked about several times before. So I'm kind of with that idea. I wish I knew who was doing it, and of course, why. But, you know, that, that makes more sense to me than this is just a natural byproduct of amazingly long odds. Okay, we got that out of the way. This is a great episode. This, this is easily... Oh, where's my list? I just realized I need to add this to my favorites list. I've been doing it as I go this time. With TNG and DS9, I kind of went back after the fact. This time I'm keeping lists as I go with both Enterprise and TOS of the top and the bottom. Uh, where would I put this episode? Let's put it... Ooh, that's a tough one. Let's put it here, I think. There we go. I guess it doesn't really matter as long as it's in the top or the bottom. But the point being, this is damn good. Uh, Jerome Bixby wrote this episode... Along with, by any other name, Day of the Dove and Requiem for Methuselah. Now, I'm, some of you have probably started wondering, I haven't seen my comments for TOS stuff. As of recording this, the TOS stuff hasn't gone live yet. But I'm curious, if anybody is going to comment saying, why haven't you been mentioning how these are based on a short story? And the answer is because I think, and I'm not actually exaggerating here, at least a third of the episodes so far have been based on or built off of a short story that either that writer or someone else already wrote. Which this this was an, this one's another example of that it's it's a really really common thing, which makes sense for the time. You know, people were sitting down like, okay, we need sci-fi scripts. There weren't a lot of sci-fi writers in the sense that there are now. So they would just pull in the sci-fi writers, and the sci-fi writers would be like, oh yeah, I'll just toss this idea at you. Change a few details, and here we go. I'm not complaining, by the way. I'm just commenting on the fact that it's such a common thing that, you know. I do want to mention another thing, though, here. This was uh, directed by Mark Daniels, who did a very good job with a lot of things, of it, including the the fact that, uh, what's his, I wrote down his name, Russ Peck. Russ Peck is in this episode. And you're probably thinking, who the heck is that? That's Spock's bodyguard, the Vulcan. He actually plays a Vulcan several times in a couple of other episodes. He's in Ser he's a one of Sarek's aide aides, for example, in Journey to Babel. So just just cool little th tidbit like that. And I thought it was a nice touch, especially given Spock's line about you know some of my people will avenge me and they are Vulcan. But I'll cover that line later. I want to talk about one other thing here. I've talked many times about how much I praise front-loaded storytelling, and I prefer writing things out, especially when it comes to something like a time loop or whatever. But I also, if anybody has been paying attention and really listening to me, I also praise backloaded storytelling. Because really, frontloaded is prep and backloaded is improv. And both have their places. In fact, honestly, a combination of both is probably best. See Babylon 5 for a good example of that. 
But I, I talk about this a lot because really carefully thought out backloaded storytelling can look like it's frontloaded. And this also, well, this, this kind of brings up one of the points that I really have. Well, I, ha I have a preference for front. The fact is what I really have a preference for is good writing. You know, intelligent, careful, well thought out, put the work in, did a good job writing. That's, that's really at the end of the day what I love. And the reason I bring that up is I want to talk about Enterprise. What? Enterprise Season 4 and this episode kind of... This isn't really a full time loop. This is more like a time roundabout. See, after this episode, we have Tholian's Web, in which the United States... The United States... Wow. The USS Defiant, United Starship Defiant, goes back in time and ends up in the Mirror Universe with In a Mirror Darkly. Then the Terrans get a hold of it, use it to put down a rebellion, and basically help to establish the Terran Empire. Terran Empire then is, is established forwards up until this episode, and then we go forward again to Tholian's Web. And you see how this kind of pseudo-loops here. The only thing that prevents it from being a true loop is there's nothing that connects uh, Mirror, in, Mirror Mirror and Tholian Web. If it wasn't for that, this would be a fairly cohesive loop. And none of that was planned out in advance. That's the value of really good backloaded storytelling and really carefully crafting your improv. That's good stuff. I just wanted to praise that. Uh, we obviously won't be talking about that anytime soon. We should be, if, if I'm even remotely correct on my uh, calendar, we should still be in Season 2, uh, Season 2, Episode 15, I want to say, tomorrow, with regards to Enterprise. But I will eventually be bringing this point up again when we get to Season 4 Enterprise. So... <clears throat> The Hulkins, right? They have Dilithium, because of course they do. But they refuse to give it, because if they were to give it, and even one life were killed by its usage, then that would be a violation of their policy of total peace. Wow, that sounds astonishingly unviable when it comes to um, anything. Like, even if you are completely somehow cut off from all other outside contact and are a totally insular community... You're telling me that there is no one in your community who has ever been not total pacifist? Also, how do you define total pacifist? Where do you draw the line at life? Because you do have to draw it somewhere. Like, you, you can't respect all life. It doesn't work that way. Because there will reach a point where you have to respect a virus. Well, I guess a virus isn't one. A bacteria. Or you. One of you gets to die. Maybe willful death is the option there. So I guess it's, I guess I shouldn't say that it's possible to be totally pacifist. God, I can't even imagine that. I'm obviously uh, very not pacifist in my mindset, so forgive me for coming down on this. Just, to, I mean, come on, really? In, in fact, it occurs to me, we never hear about the Hawkins ever again. Maybe, maybe what happened here is the Federation looked at this and said, you know what, I think they've got the right ideas. Let's just let everyone run all the way over us roughshod, and we'll, we'll, see, we'll, we'll make it work out. It'll be good, it'll be good. I do want to comment on something, though. First of all, obviously, the Federation and Starfleet have killed and will kill. No judgment. Sometimes you have to. And sometimes you can work your way around it in Star Trek fashion. But the other thing I want to point out is they have something called General Order 24, which has come up before and will come up again. That's the wipe-out-a-planet order, the base Delta Zero equivalent. Just, uh... The mere existence of such an order probably precludes any actual negotiations here. Anyways, <clears throat> there's this nice bit, though. Check this out. This is kind of cool. As the guys, uh, as, as Kirk is leaving, he says, You know, you have the power to force us to give you the crystals. And Kirk's like, And we won't consider that. And he uses that as a negotiating tactic, which, of course, makes perfect sense. He's, he really does want these, and he is trying to convince this man. But what I love about that it feels like what he's actually doing is giving Kirk an out. No, think about it. Remember what I mentioned earlier? Hypothizing about... Hypothizing? That's not a word. About the idea that they would willingly die in order to preserve their ways? Well, if they decided to just show up and start taking the Dilithium, well, they couldn't really stop them because they're pacifistic ways. And it's clear the man does have at least a degree of respect for Kirk and the Federation. It's just... They don't go far enough. They are not zealous enough. Yeah, I'm going to stick with that word. They are not zealous enough in order to adhere to the standards that the people on the planet have. So, 
<coughs> we still want to support you, but we can't support you full tilt because you don't actually support our mentality full tilt. So here's my way of kind of finding a loophole in the process, right? Oh my god. Don't worry, I'm just dying. It's okay. If I did die, it would have been months and months and months before this video goes live. <laughs> Ghost YouTuber. This is when I bring up in my notes the cloud effect. I might as well call it the mirror effect. Except that doesn't really apply. But then again, the cloud effect doesn't really apply either, does it? Mm. Mirror effect, cloud effect. Dumb premise, great episode, or great result, rather. This is so stupid. But yeah, check this out. It, it, I'm sorry, I actually forgot something. In addition to the four variables I mentioned earlier, which itself is not counting the brilliance of other variables. Check this out. It changes their outfits. Now, it has to. It has to change their outfits. Otherwise, they beam up and they're like, what the heck? What are you wearing? What's going on here? And there's and that just kind of makes the episode fall apart almost immediately. And, and you would have to completely restructure it into a, what are you aliens trying to thing? And you know, may turn it into like an escape vehicle rather than a figure out what's going on mystery kind of a vehicle. <laughs> So they changed their outfits. This is just even more fuel to the fire of the idea that there's some kind of convenience being. And it, there's an administrator of the mirror universe just watching. And he's like, oh, oh, someone just crossed over. Oh, oh, hang on, hang on. They're going to be sussed out immediately. There we go. Okay, everything's cool now. Clothing switched. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So... <clears throat> I want to comment on something that I actually really liked about this episode. Kirk has a brain. I know it's shocking, but I know I'm sounding a little bit negative here, but do keep in mind that Kirk... Kirk's been bouncing back and forth in impressing me so far in this show. Sometimes he uses his brain and he's awesome. Sometimes not so much. There's been many times where he hasn't been able to figure things out, and he's demanded answers. I bet you could think of episodes like that just right off the top of your head. A Doomsday Machine comes to mind immediately. He's like, what? What happened? Tell me everything in intricate detail. Usually this is done to get some exposition across. People exposit at Kirk, and therefore at the audience. It was nice to see that none of that is present here. Kirk sees what happens, sees them salute, sees them, you know, as I... As I he just looks around for a second, doesn't react, doesn't give himself away. I could see this falling apart so quickly and easily. What, what's going on? What's with these uniforms? How, why am I here? And then that would just completely throw the game away. Instead, he, he smoothly gets along, completely sees Spock, and he just kind of rolls with it in a normal procedure. Then he finds out what normal procedure is, which is bombarding the planet. And then, he, you know, the, 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 the transporter thing was kind of going weird, so that's a little bit strange. And then... Spock picks up the agonizer and gets the guy, and then he, as the episode, then we cut to credits. But as, as the episode is continuing, as as this scene progresses, Kirk realizes that something is up, and obviously this is not where they're supposed to be. So he 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 lines up pretty smoothly. Uhura makes a motion back in the back, but Scotty quickly is like, no 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 no, let's just let's just all play it cool, follow the captain's lead. He's playing it cool. We're playing it cool, which is the right call here. And then there's this wonderful bit. You're right. Uh, we've been having some weird feelings. I was a little dizzy after that. McCoy, you better check us out. And so they go to the sick bay. And conveniently enough, since McCoy was part of the landing party, now they have an excuse to have the whole landing party meet in private to figure out what's going on. This is all brilliantly constructed. I want to even praise this scene even more. This is one of those very few episodes I would actually kind of like to do a literal scene-by-scene -scene breakdown because there's a lot of details. So I'm going to do the best I can with my simple, crude, you know, terrible surface-level analysis of the rumination. In this scene, we see several signs that things are different. Okay, that's not a huge deal, but notice this happens in Season 2, which, as I've pointed out several times, if you do a Things Are Different episode, you need to do it after the series is already established. This is an episode for Trek regulars, is what I'm trying to say. And while that is something that you shouldn't do all the time, because then you're going to alienate, you're going to make a barrier to entry for your show. Unless you're, you're doing a string continuity show, which is a different concept. But if you're just doing a show, having nothing but string continuity, 
every episode increases the height of that barrier to entry. This is one of the reasons I prefer the story arcs concept, with uh, which only one Star Trek show that I've seen has actually ever done. Uh, that would be Season 4 Enterprise. <sighs> but there is a value, a, a definite intrinsic value, to having something that just has more impact because you're already invested in it, as I've talked about many, many times with the benefits of continuity. So, that's the first thing. The second thing, though, we have to establish how is it different. Check this out. So obviously Spock has a beard. Okay. And everyone salutes. Okay, none of that really matters. Spock does have medals, though. What does that mean to you? Honest question. First thing, you see Spock, you see he, he is adorned with more medals than he is in, you know, the real, uh, the, the prime universe. What does that mean? Immediate visual indicator of more of a military standing. Because medals, in general, tend to be associated with only a couple of things, at least here in the States. I'm not sure how this works in other countries. But if you see someone decked out in medals, well, that's probably someone militarily aligned. Sometimes you might even associate it with a dictatorship, since dictators like to give themselves fake medals. You know, like uh, the Tropico thing, right? Tropico thing. Or maybe you might associate it with someone who is very politically connected, I suppose would be another possibility there. But either way, that is an immediate, huh. Then we pull out the agonizer. Now, this is fantastic. First of all, Mr. Spock is cold but ruthless. There's actually a harder edge. Nimoy does a great job in this. They all do, actually. Everyone, everyone gets praised, but Nimoy does a good job in this episode because he comes across as like there's an extra edge to his tone. No, not no, not that edge, not the edge. Let me bleed myself. No, I mean like there's a harshness to the way he speaks. He bites off his words in a slightly more callous fashion than he normally would. And there's no lightness or light tone. He doesn't end his sentences in an upswing. They're all down, like I am currently demonstrating. I'm actually overdoing it to make my point clear. He does it more subtly than I do. But then again, Nimoy's an actual act was was an actual actor, and I'm a moron, so <clears throat> at least you get across the idea. Then, agonizer. Your agonizer, please. Not the downswing. He pulls out the agonizer. Now, I have everything to say about that, but first and most obviously, it's an agonizer. So if you're barely paying attention, the fact that Spock tortures someone for making a slight mistake already explains all that it needs to. I want to stress this, by the way, because while we associate this with evil empire, do really think about what it would be like if you were actually physically tortured for a screw-up. Not for not doing your job, you know, not for something, basically not for something that's deliberate, not sabotage or negligence or anything else, just, oh, whoops, I, I skipped. <laughs> Try to picture that for a second. Now, again, this accomplishes two goals. If you're not thinking about it, it says evil. If you are thinking about it, it says, wow, that's messed up on so many different levels. This brings me to the next interesting tidbit. Check this out. The Agonizer. The Agonizer is from the man's own belt. He pulls out his Agonizer in order to torture him. This means everyone, well, with, it, with a couple of exceptions, has their own Agonizer on their belts. You're just expected to carry your own implement of torture. That speaks volumes, but hang on, I got one more thing here. I swear we'll move off the, the second scene at some point. This is pure theory crafting at this point, but I love the idea of why everyone has their own agonizers. Oh, not, not, not the tool of oppression thing. That's, that's fairly self-apparent. No, I mean, everyone is different. Everyone has different uh, chemical makeup, different electrical signals. You ever heard the theory that if you were to somehow magically transport your brain into another person and get everything connected, it wouldn't work because the exact signals that you're used to, that you use to, to use your body, are not the exact signals that they use to use their body? It's, it's just a theory, and I don't actually know if it's anywhere near true or proven, and I haven't read about it for several years, but it's something that's always made perfect sense to me, so I've just kind of assumed it's true. The point I'm trying to get across is, if you have an agonizer, it can be tuned and focused on you. 
whatever it is that's going to hurt your exact body. They can literally scan you and be like, okay, so a frequency of yada yada and a setup of whatcha fig will be able to cause you enough pain without, without debilitating. Notice that he gets up seconds later to go back to his station and do his job. It just has to be a punishment, something that is there to hurt you without actually permanently damaging you. Standardizing that isn't going to work, especially in a, an organization that has multiple species in it, but to be perfectly frank, that wouldn't work even with humans. At least, I don't think it would. Not in the same way. I know that several people are going to disagree with me on this, and that's fine. This is all theorycrafting. I just think the idea is fascinating. So, then there's... So then they go... I, I, have to, I have to comment on this. I'm sorry, don't hate me. But, oh my god, I wish I had abs like Nichelle Nichols in this episode. Like, I have fairly muscular abs, but I've also got a layer of fat on top of them. She has really nice abs in this episode. I wish I had that nice of abs. Oh my god. Okay, we're done. <clears throat> so, <laughs> they go, they head out, and they start questioning. Uhuru starts questioning. Not, not now. Uh, it's, 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 we got to keep playing along. We got to keep playing on. So they go and they find out the premise and blah 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 blah. This is when I talk about something. I've brought up this up before. There's a difference. It's it's hard to explain without an example, but there's a difference between an opposite and an inverse. And I've talked about this a lot when it comes to this show. Um, the idea of something being the opposite is, you know, it is the opposite. But what is the inverse then? Well, the inverse is the same but flipped. And it's worth noting that an inverse can be an inverse on multiple axes. The reason I bring all this up is this is an episode where it's very, very clear that this is the inverse universe. In short, these are not opposites. These are not evil versions of themselves. These are flipped versions of themselves. People who have grown up under different circumstances and operate under the same general precepts. They have the same general goals. They, they work towards the same general ends, but the methods by which they use to do them are substantially different and, in many cases, mirrored from the way that they would normally do that. Rather than diplomacy and tactics and cooperation and trying to talk your way through a situation, Kirk, for example, brute forces his way with actual callousness. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll talk about that now. Sure, why not? This is a great example. They show Mirror Kirk once in the whole episode. Hi! Hi, you! You know, that scene. And, well, it's a great chance for Kirk to ham it up. That is to say, Shatner to ham it up. The real reason I bring that up is because that shows that Mirror Kirk does not have the brain that our Kirk does. Now, Spock has a throwaway line at the end. Only you could possibly have done this because you're civilized and they're barbarians. But nothing I have seen actually indicates that. And frankly, Spock had no real information to make that diagnosis. He was just speculating in a vacuum. No, I think it's actually far more obvious of an answer. I think Mir Kirk never had to be that good. Let me explain what I mean by that. I want you to imagine that you are, uh, how do I say this? You have been through a lot, and you have gotten smarter and stronger and more cunning because you have refused to let life kill you, and thus you have gotten better, okay? Darth Vader, to use an example, although I know that that kind of bounces back and forth depending on which continuity you count, but you get it, right? You get the idea. With those limitations, he had to force himself to be better, and that's why Darth Vader is a death machine. Okay? Well, what if you had all the advantages walking in? Actually, i got a better example of this. Deanna Troy. Deanna Troy, this is what they should have done and didn't. I've talked about this so many times. During the episode The Loss, she should have not gotten her powers back, because they were a crutch. That episode very clearly indicated that they were a crutch to her. She was so accustomed to being able to feel what people were going through and how they, they operated that it was pretty much the only tool she used. Because when you have that much of an advantage, you don't have to be good. Because you effectively already are. Your raw strength overwhelms your, your, uh, your skill strength and your overall power level tends to be basically the same because the raw strength makes up for the lack of skill. It's a pretty common concept. So, Kirk, raw strength, the Tantalus device. 
we find out, thanks to very... This episode has wonderful exposition all over the place, by the way. We find out that he ascended to captaincy by assassinating Pike. We also find out that the Tantalus Field is the specific device he used to do it with. This means that before Mirakirk was ever captain, he got a hold of that device, and then, well, he had... He was cheating from that point on, right? He didn't have to be good. And considering how long ago Kirk took captaincy, how long ago Pike was captain, we understand that in the years that have followed since... I'm actually not sure the exact years. Don't, don't ask me. I forgot to look it up. In the years that have followed, he has never had to develop that cunning that is Kirk's hallmark, that, that adaptability, that being able to come up with it on the fly. Mira Kirk would have never come up with the Corbinite maneuver because he's never been in a situation where he had to. Make sense? In other words... This then goes back to that inverse idea. Mirror Kirk is not evil Kirk. He is Mirror Kirk. He is not his opposite. Opposite Kirk would probably be someone who is... Um, none of this is meant as an insult. Someone extremely feminine. Um, you know, someone very, very comfortable with being very feminine and how they approach and uh, interact with people. Uh, probably asexual, like completely not interested in, in, in anything romantic or, or sex, uh, sexual at all. Someone who probably is pretty dumb, doesn't actually know what they're doing. And, and as I'm listing out these attributes, you see what I mean about the difference between inverse and opposite. And this is why I say it's easier to explain by using an analogy. Because if you actually think what opposite Kirk would be like, it's nothing like Mirror Kirk. I know Mirror Kirk is stupider, but he's not a total moron, which, you know, obvious. And he probably wouldn't have taken a captain's woman, for example. Although we do hear the idea that he, his relationship with her has been on the downswing lately, so maybe he's just getting bored of her. I don't know. He's a pretty horrible human being, and he probably dies. But, well, this is a good time to mention that. Check this out. In my research, I found an article here. This is from the Grand Slam 13. That was the 2005 Vegas Trek convention. Okay? Just giving my sources here. Because while they were there, they had a panel with Manny Cotto, Mike Sussman, Andrea... Andre Barmanis, and, of course, the Binars. Uh, that would be Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens, a.k.a. some excellent writers, the, the, the Reeves-Stevens duo. I actually love their stuff. They wrote one of my favorite Star Trek books, Federation. Anyways, check this out. They were talking about... Blah, 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 blah. Shatner has actually talked about a concept which he, which he pitched. Well, it was in this convention that that was revealed. I'm just going to read this word for word, okay? This is from uh, Garfield, specifically. The idea was that the Tantalus field was not a disintegrator. It was a humane way of dealing with prisoners by sending them back in time to a sealed penal colony. The Enterprise NX-01 would then come across the colony, and Tiberius, Mirakirk, is there. Tiberius thinks, finally, a ship with a transporter, I can get back to my own universe, my own time, and he basically goes on the NX-01, gets to the transporter, gets, sets it to the Mirror Universe, and the Mirror Universe doesn't exist because it hasn't been created yet. So Tiberius and Archer work together to figure out where the diversion point is between the universes, what point that one split off is from the other, and as it turns out, Tiberius and Archer together are responsible for the creation of the Mirror Universe. Many Coda recounted that Shatner pitched the idea to him, and Brennan Braga and Bert, uh, Rick Berman over lunch. They loved it, but Berman pitched an alternative concept, which was actually devised by Sussman. Sussman explained Shatner was going to be Chef, an ancestor of Kirk. And we, would we would find out at some point in the future, the real Kirk got into trouble, got taken out of history, and Daniels would show up, grab Archer, grab Chef, who of course was played by William Shatner, and said, you have to go to the future and impersonate Kirk in some important ceremony. And that was the setup. We pitched this to Shatner, and there was a long silence, Coda continued. Well, since negotiations fell through, there would be no Kirk story, but they still wanted to do a Mirror's two-parter, and so that led to In a Mirror Darkly. That was going to be an Enterprise episode, both of those. Personally, I like the uh, the Binar idea. That is to say, the idea by the Reeve Stevens better, because that actually sounds really cool, and it would have been an interesting way to pull Shatner in. And you're probably thinking, well, wait, how could Shatner possibly be Kirk? Mirror Kirk, he's so much older. Well, if you're paying attention... It sent him back in time, and then he was stuck in this penal colony until the NX-01 shows up. Enough time for Kirk to have aged to be the age of William Shatner. That is, by the way, once again, some excellent uh, improv writing there, and another reason why I like that duo. Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> Obviously, none of that is anything. I just wanted to share that here while we were talking about it. Let's talk about ship discipline. There's none. 
I'm amazed anybody does their jobs on this ship when someone's not watching. Although that is the nature of most evil empires, isn't it? When the only reason to do your job is you will be whipped if you don't, you tend to take every possible opportunity to not do your job. That's not just me speaking it, that's historical fact. Although, of course, there are obviously quite a few people who will just go along doing their jobs even when whipped. And then there's the whole thing about people who think they're going to be whipped even when the possibility of being whipped doesn't exist anymore, which is a whole other level of messed up. You get the point. Kirk does an interesting thing. Again, the adaptability here. The improv. No. No. Don't, don't go after it. Don't shoot it down. He plays it like he's got some big scheme, which is also effectively how he portrays himself to uh, the woman later, which I'll talk about in a second. And then he goes down and Chekhov tries to kill him, and Kirk nearly dies. No, seriously, Kirk very, very nearly dies here. If not for the lucky fact that one of Chekhov's men thought he could get a bigger payday by betraying Chekhov to him, then he would have been killed right then and there by Chekhov. That's, um, as, as the woman later, I keep not saying her name for a reason, I'll get to it in a second. Uh, as she mentions later, you got lucky. And he did, he got very lucky there. It does make me think very, very much about shipboard politics and how much I love that idea, and I kind of wish we saw more of that. Now you're probably thinking, Laura, you're boring and stump, dumb, and you are absolutely right. So I'm going to just boring it up here, okay? You ever play Dragon Age Origins? One of the things mentioned in Dragon Age Origins is the idea that there's several political groups amongst the mage circle. Circles, I should really use that as a plural. Each circle tends to have its own little political parties. Now you're thinking, ugh, but no, hear me out, hear me out. I know political party is a word that, that's basically a bad word at this point in time because of how vitriolic that's gotten. But there's nothing wrong with forming a, a political alliance with people who have like-minded ideas. In fact, that makes 100% sense to me. It makes so much sense, I'm astonished we don't do more of it in real life. Oh, wait, we do that constantly. We just don't do it officially. How many of you have ever worked in an office? You know what office politics are like. I've had office politics in an Arby's. People just kind of naturally form groups, and, and sometimes there's some overlap. I can't do a proper Venn diagram here. Sometimes there's some overlap of some of those groups, but for the most part, everyone just kind of part and parcels out, right? I like the idea of making it official. You'll notice, and I already kind of commented on this, there's the bodyguards. Everyone has their own bodyguards, even have the same uniform. So you can't quite tell who's whom's bodyguard. Whom's whose? Who's whom's? I'm not sure what the proper grammar is on that. The only one you could tell for certainty is Spock's. I already commented on him, because he's a frickin' Vulcan. Kirk even has his own bodyguard who follows him around at a certain point. And all of this just got my mind going. I'm at, I, I, I hate to say this, but now I'm thinking, I've, I've had so many Star Trek show ideas over the years. I love the idea of internal ship politics being an aspect of the show. Actual factions being developed and working. Not in the sense that it would interfere with everyday function, not to the extent that is in this episode. Because in this episode, it's much more um, opposing factions. Now, that's a key distinction. You notice that I mentioned factions earlier. Not necessarily opposing factions. You and I may disagree on something, but that does not make us enemies, right? At least it shouldn't. Nevertheless, Opposing factions is what we have here, because it's not that we disagree on something in the strictest sense. I mean, we do. You think you should be captain, and I think that I should be captain. But that's not really a disagreement, not, not in any real sense. No, th what that is is an opposition. At that point, we are demonstrably enemies, and that's what happens in, in the mirror universe here. We have enemy factions which are fo formed. We even notice that Sulu obviously has one of the stronger factions to himself. In fact, the only ones, and no, let me rewind that, the only one person who has a stronger faction base than Sulu is Spock. You'll notice I do not mention Kirk. Remember, Mir Kirk doesn't really have a faction base. He has her, and he has the Tantalus field. Other than that, he has someone who is content with remaining first officer, which I find wonderfully logical, by the way, because he doesn't want to have the greater target on his back. He doesn't want to be the captain. He wants to keep doing what he wants to do, being a science officer. So he's kind of cool with things as they are. But anyways, <clears throat> he doesn't have anybody else. He has his bodyguards and whoever he throws chips at, and that's basically it. 
This is just, I'm sorry for gushing about this, but this just this got my mind burning about all the ideas you could do with this concept when taken to a less violent extreme. Uh, imagine, you know, the different ideas and groups and conglomerates that could form on a ship. And I mentioned this earlier, you know, not necessarily getting in the way of ship operations, but ultimately and inevitably becoming a part of ship operations. The captain has the final say, but a captain is meaningless without a crew. The captain cannot run a ship by himself or herself, ergo, if a captain does not have the necessary political backing to do a certain type of action in a certain way, that could be a problem. So the captain would have to play and make sure that their faction was doing all right to make sure people agreed with them enough for the kind of things they want to do. Now that may sound like hell, and I would agree, in real life that would suck, but, well, this isn't real life, is it? This is just fantasy. Sorry, sorry, dumb joke, dumb joke. Point being, I could think of so many story ideas. In fact, even ignoring main stories, that could just be an undercurrent. I could, I could picture that being an undercurrent for the whole show, and I love it. But anyways, I'm, I'm getting off topic. <laughs> I love how relatively uh, quickly and easily Mir Spock, excuse me, excuse me, regular Spock, figures out Mir Kirk, by the way. Obviously, Mir Kirk can't act worth a damn, but... This is Star Trek. How many times has there been someone acting out of character and nobody really notices? It was one of my biggest... Ugh, it was, it was like, oh god, the Mirkirk's going to be over there being an evil dick and nobody's going to notice. I mean, it took them forever to even recognize that everything was wrong with the enemy within. You know, actually evil Kirk. You remember that? Anyways. So, Spock, there's his motives. I mentioned that. This is when I mentioned the bodyguards, which I've also already talked about. Um... There's this wonderful back and forth. Kirk and Spock are talking while Chekhov's being tortured over there. And Kirk and Spock just kind of go back and forth a little bit. Spock says, this is not a threat. It's a statement of facts. And he just kind of continues laying it out. And then Kirk continues to lay it out. And after a bit, finally gets to the point where Spock says, I, I don't really want to be in opposition to you. This is when Kirk says, and I wrote down the whole quote here, you would find me a formidable enemy. Then Spock says, I am aware of that, Captain. I trust that you are aware of the reverse. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a threat. And is a beautiful threat. At 24 minutes into the episode, Barbara Luna's character shows up. Now, you're probably wondering, why, why are you not saying her name? Because have you ever watched this episode? Because she actually calls herself Marlena. Right, re pretty early on, she actually says Marlena. And then later on, she says Marlena. And Kirk, of course, pronounces it Marlena throughout the episode. And so I'm only mentioning it here because I'm not 100% sure which is actually supposed to be accurate there. I try to go by the actual pronunciations, since Lord knows my pronunciations are awful and terrible. But it's hard to do that when the actors themselves can't seem to make up their mind, a problem that has cropped up more than once in the course of my life. So I'm going to go with Marlena, just because it's the most common one. Uh, before I talk about her, if that's okay, I want to talk about the Tantalus field. I've already given my thoughts on it being, you know, the power. It's the it's the Q ability, right? It's it's you have so much power. Excuse me, you have so much raw strength that your relative power is so much higher, so you don't have to be skilled. I already talked about that. What I want to talk about is where it, what it is. Is it's 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 a transporter. I'm not even talking about the story pitch about, you know, how it sends them back into the past. No, I mean, if you look at this thing, it makes so much sense that this thing is a transporter that just doesn't rematerialize them. I've said so many times that the transporter is a weapon. And as of this point in the story, since I'm trying to adhere myself to continuity that's already been established in this show, we've already done that, thanks to uh, Wolf in the Fold. The, uh, the the Jack the Ripper episode. Red Jack? Yeah, we already know that you can beam someone out in just maximum dispersal. There you go. It once again reminds me of how the transporter is one of the most terrifying and deadly weapons ever introduced on Star Trek, and that is saying something. But now i got to talk about Marlena. I don't want to. Because I'm going to have people killing me over this, because this is life and the internet. But let's go ahead and talk about the nature of a woman who sells sex for position. It's the same what it is. 
Captain's Woman. That's actually how she says it, Captain's Woman. And both her and Kirk basically act as though she is property. Let me rephrase that. Kirk actually doesn't act like she's property, which is what confuses the hell out of her in both this scene and the upcoming scene where she shows up. I'm just going to combine these two for the discussion purposes. In both of those scenes, she's dis disturbed and weirded out that he is not acting like she's property, which she presumes means that he no longer wants her and he is trying to discard her. So she is going to try and become some other person's captain wo captain's woman. Okay. So I probably don't need to comment on the fact that I'm not cool with people being property. Let's just get that out of the way. In a cutthroat, pragmatic environment like this, something like a captain's woman makes way too much sense, which is part of what disturbs me about it. Now think about it. Remember what I mentioned earlier about the political factions? Well, rewind that back to what is actually in this episode, because these are not opposing, excuse me, these are not uh, political factions amongst a ship. These are opposing factions. So aligning yourself to someone else equals good, right? Strength in numbers, alliance, tribal, blah, blah, blah. So someone deciding to align themselves with their captain in such a manner makes, unfortunately, a huge amount of sense because it's just a basic defensive mechanism at that point. Being the person who is safe by virtue of being the captains, it would warrant off unwanted advances from anyone else, at least in theory, and it would also ensure that you have position. No, no pun intended. She mentions she has a rank, too. So this is, it's not like it's the, it, it, I'm trying to have the phrase. It's different from a post. Because it's, she, the idea here is that she has a rank. I don't know what, ensign, lieutenant, doesn't matter. But she also has a post, her post being the captain's woman here. And she mentions the idea of trying to go off and do something else and well, blah, 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 blah. This makes so much sense to me and it really disgusts me on so many levels. And to be clear, that is regardless of genders. No, it is. Because it's not that hard to assume a female captain who has a captain's man, or a captain's woman, or both, or a male captain who has a captain's man, or both. All of these would be the exact same scenario. The gender is not part of the equation. <sighs> At least it shouldn't be in-universe. Obviously this is the 60s, so of course it's part of the equation, but I think I've complained about that enough. You get the idea. You are electing to become someone's property for the extra protection that, that being in their zone of influence gives you. This then explains why she is so angry about the fact that he might be rejecting her. Because she's going to lose all that position and influence, and it's also going to basically destroy her career. She mentions she, she doesn't want to be ridiculed, and she wants to continue climbing. That that's something that she actually wants to go for. This is probably also why she elects to support Kirk um, in the idea of him moving beyond just captaincy. As a quick aside, I've never understood why people in a, you know, evil empire like the Terran Empire ever try to climb up the ranks. That has never made sense to me. Like, like, there's like a diminishing returns, because the higher you get, the, the more people think, oh, I wish I was that high. Basically, you have, it's not just you have a larger target on your back. More people think that target is acceptable because they're stupid and don't actually understand what it takes to actually be in charge. So you have morons coming after you in addition to actually intelligent people coming after you. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 Spock had the right idea, I'm just saying. Right here, first officer. Don't want to go any higher. Uh, um, I don't know, what do you guys think? What do you guys think about all this? I do have one last thing to say about Marlena. Check this out, this is interesting. Kirk is nice to her. Marlena also saves his life and spares his towards the end of the episode. Do you think those are unrelated co concepts? I point this out because this is probably the most subtle point of the episode, and honestly, I'm not even sure if it was done on purpose. But the idea here, well, it's, it's, it's the honey versus vinegar concept, right? Actually engendering real loyalty in people is something Kirk is good at. And that's the kind of thing that will engender real loyalty rather than, you know, rule by terror, which is not loyalty, which is what Mirkirk does. Food for thought. Anyway, then we have Uhura's big scene. I have to admit, by the way, this is one of the nicer episodes for focusing on groups that aren't the big three. Well, obviously, Kirk and Spock have a huge amount of the narrative focused on them. We still get to see several scenes with Uhura, 
couple scenes with Chekhov, several scenes with Sulu. He's actually basically the villain of the episode. And, of course, several scenes with Scotty. It's it's nice to, to have that branch out a little bit. And I just wanted to comment on it since, you know, that was one of the main points that was mentioned in several interviews with regards to season two. <laughs> so now we have two ticking clocks. First of all, Spock has his orders to kill the captain. And second of all, the planet's alignment will get out to the point where they can't beam back. Okay. So now we have two problems to deal with. Spock also does this wonderful bit where Sulu's like, I've totally got your back because I'm ambitious and evil. And remember, Sulu's in a strong position here. The reason he is the villain is because he has the most backing. He is in charge of security and all the power that implies. And he is someone who is perfectly positioned to try and actually leap over Spock to the captain's seat, as is demonstrated by his actions towards the end of the episode. This is something... It, it, and he also has the most people backing him. Chekhov had, like, what, three guys? That was his faction, three guys. Sulu, well, he has, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, at least six people that we see on his side. Possibly more. I, I would like to think more on a ship of 400, or however many on, are on the ISS. So, this leads to uh, Spock talking him down, and that wonderful line I mentioned earlier. Understand this, Mr. Sulu, if I were to die, my people would want vengeance, and some of them are Vulcans. This is, once again, excellent exposition. Because he doesn't explain it. As you know, Mr. Sulu, the Vulcans are especially vicious and deadly and more than capable of taking out a dozen men by themselves. No, he doesn't need to explain. His tone and Sulu's reaction say all that needs to be said about what it means to have Vulcans in your corner in this particular universe. And that's awesome. I love the fact... Oh, excuse me, hang on. Let me, let me give... I never actually say this in real life, but... <clears throat> And I like that. There we go. God. I have so many verbal tics, and for some reason, Low Reloaded picks out that one. I, I barely say that. If you were like, so, as a branching thing, you could use that as a verbal tick. If you were to mention, you follow me? You know, sure, you can mention that. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. Oh, yeah, that's another one. I'm getting off topic. That's <laughs> another verbal tick I have several times. It's another transition thing I use as I go down to check my notes and see that the next big scene is the fight and the fight and the fight and the fight. It's actually one of the worst fights I've seen so far. Not the worst. The only thing I like about the fight is the fact that it shows that Spock, by himself, can take on basically everyone else. However, it is worth noting that in the matter of that fight, they damage Spock so much that he is injured to the point of dying which also says a lot about how hard Spock was fighting that entire time. Which, again, good exposition. But it's way over-edited. Way too much editing for it to be really an interesting thing. And while the overhead shot does help, it's really obvious that is not Leonard Nimoy. I know, I know. Difference in television. I'm not, I'm not going to ding it for that. Really, what I'm going to ding it for is the over-editing. It just it, it kills the, the, the fight for me. I think the only over-edited fight scene I've liked so far was in a muck time, and that's because they actually used the edits very carefully and precisely to add to the scene. Sulu then comes in, and he is now the final threat. Notice, by the way, McCoy's like, I only need a minute to save him. Okay, go save him then. Then Sulu shows up and rambles for a bit, and we get to commercial break. And then they fight, and then the rest of the Sulu's men are disappeared, and then they fight. And Actually, I, I said in the wrong order. They disappear, then they fight. Then McCoy says, I only need a minute. Y you, you had more than a minute, McCoy. Get to, get to your frickin' job. Then when McCoy finally does resurrect, or you know, help Spock, Spock gets up. It, it takes like 20 seconds tops. <clears throat> but yeah, Sulu's the final threat. Marlena, Marlena, she de defeats his men, spares Sulu, I'm not sure why, probably because he didn't actually have a phaser, so, you know, and goes to grab a gun and, and insist because she's been following along and has figured out what's going on, because she's not stupid. Ironically, she's actually quite smart, it's probably why she's a captain's woman, because the system is so screwed up that that's one of the safer positions to be in. Note that this exact concept, the captain's woman being the smart play, is actually something that comes up in Enterprise as well, so that's horrible. So Sulu's defeated. Oh, thank goodness. They, they get up and they go off, but then... <gasps> Marlene! Marlena, she is now the final... Oh no, she's defeated in seconds by Uhura. Okay. Whew, the final threat's been defeated. Wait a minute. The power's out. That means we have to 
Someone has to stay behind. The final threat has been... Oh, no, that was just Spock doing it. Oh, wait, but Spock is now the final threat. Oh, no, he just, he's just here to see us all. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just memeing. I do like this this mini-escalation that happens at the end here, because it's everything logically colluding with itself. Marlena wants to go back and can't. It's not an option. Among other things, they've mentioned before that this is a transference, so if they do send her back, that means the other one comes over here. Also, it probably doesn't work that way in general, but let's ignore that for a moment. There's also the fact that Kirk decides to stay behind. This is something I've talked about before, and I just want to point it out, because this is yet another example of this recurring motif of Kirk being self-sacrificing, arguably too self-sacrificing, to the point where he will gladly and without hesitation lay down his own life for the sake of his crew, even when maybe he should think about another option there. Then Spock shows up, and Kirk gives the big speech. There's actually a funny thing. I don't believe I've ever noticed this before. Kirk mentions, what about the... You know, the predicted rebellion, and Spock just effortlessly says, oh, it'll happen in 240 years. That was actually a line from the original script, which was cut, so it's referencing a missing line, if you're wondering what that's about. He gives this big speech. I like this big speech, actually. It's, it's one of the better written Kirk speeches that I've seen. In fact, probably the best written Kirk speech I've seen so far in this show. But what I love most about it is Spock is more than willing to consider it because he has both axes. On the one axis... He needs the motivation, which is what Kirk is effectively providing. Not only is it a better circumstance to try and overhaul and start a revolution, but it will be better preference to him personally. In other words, it will be better for everyone, and it will be better for him. So he's got motivation now. But then Spock flat out says, a man must have the power. And he's absolutely right. You need power to do. That's the definition of power, is the ability to do. Then Kirk gives him the Tantalus field. Huh. You'll notice that he also has a brief, very brief moment with Marlena as he leaves. Now, I like that because it implies that Spock and Marlena are kind of, kind of co-op on this one. Which is funny, because she's never heard from again, and we, we know how things turn out for uh, Mir Spock, which kind of sucks, admittedly. Thanks, DS9, for ruining that. But, but what I do like is there's a book, and I don't remember which, please forgive me, where the two of them do become allies. In fact, I think Marlena ends up marrying Spock in that one. But either way, Spock and Marlena become allies, and they use the Tantalus field to effect change. And that, that's basically the story of how they end up rising to power and end up taking over and then revolutionizing the Terran Empire in order to turn it into a less horribly evil organization that's doomed to self-destruction. <sighs> then the Alliance shows up and kills them, but, you know, whatever. And then the episode has a few jokes at the end, because it's contractually objugated by law. The ancient demons will awaken if there's not a Trek episode without a wah-wah at the end. I don't actually know why they do that. What I do know is that this has been an awesome episode. This is a huge treat to go back through. I hope you guys have enjoyed, because Lord knows I have. Thank you very much for your time, as always. See you next time.